Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, presented by Osiris Media. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight shines on companies doing interesting work at the crossroads of music and technology. In our first segment, we talk to Adam Hassler, CEO of online digital audio workstation and beatmaking platform Soundation. Every month, Soundation's online music studio is used by over 100,000 creative types who produce music directly in their web browsers. Focusing on building the next generation music software for upcoming music producers, Soundation offers a collaborative workstation, a vibrant online community, and many, many learning tools. The company's mission is to facilitate musical creativity around the world. Next, we'll have Max Goldberg and Steven Siegel of Hot Drop, a new app that addresses the current generational shift underway in music discovery and consumption. 30-second snippets enable rapid discovery. They're easily shared with other music superfans, and they yield high virality for emerging artists. Hot Drop enables exactly this. Whether you create, promote, or just enjoy music, I hope today's episode has something for you. Enjoy the talks. Thank you for making time to um, to sure. talk. I'm, I'm really excited to speak with you. And I wonder if maybe we could start at 10,000 feet and work our way down to the product level, if that's okay with you. Yeah, sure. What I want to understand at the outset is, I guess, what thesis you're working from or what problem statement you were seeing in the space, because it is a space that I think there, you know, there's been players and incumbents over the years. And I'm wondering what you identified that you thought you could do uniquely or that made the space attractive. Well, I think the the music production space, the market is, is so much friction. If you compare it to design tools, I, I know if you are familiar with Figma or Canva, these companies where they you actually can work online, you can collaborate, you can integrate with other services. And within the music production space, it's incredible how much friction it is. If you want to move a preset from your plugin to another computer, you often have to you have to download the presets. You have to set up the plugin in the other computer, and you sometimes have to move the files to the right directory. It's a mess, and people avoid doing it. And I think, especially with the music creation workflow that people have today. I think on average, you have six or eight producers on the Billboard Top 100. And when they want to work together, they bounce all their all their tracks and they zip it, put it in a Dropbox folder, and then the other person has to download it. And sometimes it doesn't work because they don't have the same plugins or they don't have the same DAW. There's so much friction. And so we're always looking at zero friction with everything that we're that we're building we have themes when we're building our our features and our studio and so on so i think that's sort of the big improvement to the space and i know that the incumbents has an eye on this we talk to them quite often so i think everyone understands that music production will become webified 
at at Sunday, and it's just a matter of time. And also, I've been thinking about plug-in companies. What could be the biggest growth opportunity for a plug-in company? I think that enabling your users to share their presets with their friends could be a great growth opportunity. If the plugin is webified, then I could do my nice presets in my plugin and I can share it with you via link. And you don't even have to have bought the actual plugin yet. You can just click on it, test it out. And this sounds great. I have to buy that plugin. So it, it feels like the music production space, what they have done uh, regarding webifying is that you don't have to buy a CD or a DVD to install your program. You can actually download it. But that's about as far as, as it's come. And now I'm talking about the creation software. It has happened a lot around samples, like companies like Splice uh, and Lander, who's do AI mastering. And there's a bunch of companies sort of surrounding this space. But the core, which is the DAW, that's the canvas on where, where you create music, that hasn't yet been webified. So I think when we do that in a good way, and it's, it's a cloud DAW, then you can hook up all the other services to it too. Do you have a thesis as to why that hasn't happened yet? I think when you look at some of the software companies that come from sort of the shrink-wrapped disk era, I think of what Microsoft has done with Office or Adobe has done with their creative suite. Why haven't the DAW vendors or, or developers moved in that direction? It's hard. And I think you have to build a different DAW if the purpose is to make it webified. You can't just take Ableton or Logic and just upload it. Uh, you have to build the sound engine in a specific way. You don't have the same performance in a browser as you have with a native app. So, of course, that is an issue. We're working quite closely with Google and their WebAssembly team. WebAssembly is, you could call it a protocol of how to take your C++ app or a Rust app and webify it to make it available in the browser. So we were one of the first companies to get to test out WebAssembly threads. In a normal web app, you can only use one core in your CPU, in your laptop. But with threads, you can use up to six cores. So you can get your web app much quicker and faster and have way better performance. So we increase the performance of our DAW with 500% just by moving over to, to WebAssembly threads. Mm. I think performance is probably what they're most worried about. And they also have customers who have high needs and they have high, high standards. They're a bit afraid of launching a web dog, I would guess. Yeah. So something sort of implicit in the way you just described it is that on the short term, and I'm not defining what that means in terms of a length horizon, but on the short term, on the near term, there are some expected performance or feature trade-offs with a webified DAW, but probably only limited till these web-enabled platforms become some of the optimizations and, and architectural pieces get put in place like you're describing with Google. And I wonder, on that near term, 
are you purely in proof of concept mode or even with that sort of for lack of a better way to say it disadvantage or built-in limitation is there a business there for you is there so do you end up by definition targeting a different type of creator well yeah and currently we have a good enough studio to do most pop uh, hip-hop music uh, if you're going to record, you know, the Vienna Symphony Orchestra, then you won't use the WebDAW. But if you're just recording for yourself and you want to play around with samples or uh, have fun with, 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 with different sounds, then you can definitely use the WebDAW. I think performance-wise, we're there to be sufficient for hobby producers out there. I know if you're going to record a professional artist, you will probably do that in a physical studio anyway. But also for this sort of just collaborating, we have a lot of users who has a desktop DAW, but then they use our DAW for when they're going to work with other people. So instead of sipping files and sending via Dropbox, they can be in the same workspace at the same time and you can see the other user's cursor when he drags in a sample or when he records with his MIDI controller. That part, we were the first real-time collaborative DAW that came to the market. So that part of the creation workflow you you can do with us. But then we have about 100,000 monthly active users who create music in our DAW each month. So yeah, I I think another big challenge for us to really challenge the desktop DAWs, it's the plugins because there's millions of plugins out there and they are not built for the web. And that's the first question I get when I talk to someone who, who already has a desktop DAW is, can I get my plugins into your DAW? I said, yeah, not yet. And it's a bit of a chicken and a hen issue because they have to build it for us to really excel with our product. We have to show them that there is a market for this. And we're talking to, to, to some plugin companies who thinks this is really interesting. It's almost like an app store ecosystem model. You have a platform and you need to foster an ecosystem of developers for your platform. Yeah, I I think in the long run, we have to get the, the plugin companies onto this. And I think it will. It's just a matter of time. And right now we're at the forefront, sort of a bleeding edge company currently. But there's a company here in Stockholm called Recent Studios. They also have a DAW, but they have like 70, 80 really good plugins. So we have ported one of their plugins into our studio, and that's a wavetable synthesizer. So it's quite a heavy plugin, and it's working really, really well in our studio. So it's definitely doable. Performance isn't an issue unless you have 40 tracks with effects on like everything. For the benefit of our listeners, what orientation did you come to this from were you a were you a producer musician where was this a technology problem you were curious about solving sort of how, what was your entree into this when i was a teenager i wanted to be a rock star of course uh, like <laughs> uh, like everyone so i i played in a couple of bands uh, guitar singer so i've always had had music now these days i normally play at a wedding per year or something something like that uh, i used to be a dj before that actually but that was back at the vinyl times when we were being a dj with with these technique uh, vinyl players 
I understood that I, I wouldn't be able to make a living on playing music. I'm, I'm not that good. So I, I ended up going to business school and also uh, computer science here in, here, here in Sweden. And after that, I started a few companies. I joined Procter & Gamble, an American company, a big one. And then I joined a group here in Sweden called Shinevi, which is quite famous here. A bit like Virgin Group, but in the, in the Nordics. And there was working for Teletu, which is a mobile operator. And was working then with uh, music services. This was just when, when Spotify started uh, and also video services for your mobile. This was before iPhone. So I, I got into a bit of music there as well. But then I started a crowdfunding platform company working with charities mainly here in, here in, in Sweden. Most charities here have, have used our platform to enable their supporters to raise money for them. Then I got kids. <laughs> and uh, I thought maybe I need a salary now. And then this opportunity came along. So this company is actually, it was founded in 99 and they started with recording samples. They, they had access to a professional studio here, in, here in, in Stockholm and recorded a bunch of samples. And they sold to, I think they've been on some, one of the sounds have been on some Beyonce album. And a rather garage band sounds comes from, from their catalog. But they didn't really figure out the business model. So the family that was funding the company uh, came to a point where they say, okay, either you come up with a plan on how to make this into a profitable business, or we have to find another way. So it ended up with the family actually buying out the original founders. And then they had a company without any team. And then I came along um, and they asked me if, you know, Hey, Adam, you like music and you like to build companies. Uh, wouldn't this fit you? Uh, and by then they had a studio in Flash. So I put together my team and we started the uh, partnership with Google and understood that that's the way forward. Now we're, we're only eight people. I think eight excellent people often outperforms 50 good people. Can you talk a little bit about to the extent that you're able what does the partnership with Google do for you? Are they helping with some of the, like, is it core architecture research? Like, is it part of your R&D? Like, how, how do you, how do they fit into your, your tech stack or into your architecture? They have a few teams, but especially the teams working with WebAssembly, how to get an app built in C++ or Rust into the web, working in the, uh, in the web in a good way. Then they also have the web audio team. We're not working that much with web audio. We more or less built our studio in C++, the same language that most DOS, the desktop DOS use. And then we use WebAssembly to, to get it into the web. So what we do when we meet with them is that they talk about what they have coming and we sometimes find bugs to Chrome and They've actually postponed the release of Chrome due to one of the bugs that we found. So they like us because we have a lot of users. Uh, we can test out the new, the new features coming out to see that works and mm -hmm. also give them input on what we think it's most interesting to focus on going forward. There is, of course, latency difference. There's a bit more latency in the browser, especially when you record audio. 
the media latency isn't really an, an issue, but recording audio is because it's a bit of a black box. We don't know exactly what the latency will be. So that's also why we're now, we're focusing more on sample-based music production. So there's not that many of our users that ask for recording audio features. It's much more, we want a sampler or we want a beat maker, or we want these effects or we want sidechain. So it's much more electric music focused. Is there a, a, a high level sort of simple way to describe what happens between the app being natively C++ and what's happening to make it webified? Like, would the analogy be it's the codes compiled a different, like what, what's, what's happening from when you write the code to it becoming webified? Yeah, maybe I should brought my CTO into this. Uh... <laughs> no, no, I actually would prefer it not be as technical of an answer. I, I'm just curious, like, is there a, yeah. does it like, it, do you run it through a process or is it rewritten code or? I don't think so. For example, I, I can describe how we did with recent studios, Wavetable Synthesizer, they compile it into something called a bytecode. We get like a like an image that we can't look at at the source code, uh, but we can take that image and put it into our engine and work with their app inside our app. And it all happens sort of server side. It happens. No, we we do everything at the client. Oh. the entire studio is loaded in every user's. Chrome browser, which we also like, especially with people lab poor connection and uh, also being able to do an an offline app in the future. We 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 have a lot of requests for that from users. So we want to keep everything client side. We of course save the data on our servers, uh, but we don't want any of the music creation to be done. And this has enabled us to do something that. We're about to release. We've released the first step on it, but we are now able to embed our studio to any site. Any site can get a custom web DAW on their site. And since it's a web app, we can tailor how that DAW should, should be used. So we're now working with one sample company who's selling samples called Mode Audio from Ireland. They're great at recording samples. And they have a shop where you can go and listen to a sample, like a song that they've made based on those samples. So it's a it's a preview of what the pack has. Then you decide whether you should buy it or not. They can now get their own custom version of our DAW. So they can load all the samples into that DAW and the user can open it up in a pop-up play around with it, add the different sounds from the pack to the studio. They can also drag in their own vocals if they want to, to like see, uh, does this fit or not? So it's almost like we're building a bit of a Shopify for audio. You, we give them all of these great audio features that they wouldn't build on their own. That's fascinating. This idea came almost as a joke. You know, maybe we could embed it because, they, you know, YouTube videos are embedded all the time. But now you can also embed the Figma and, and the signs and so on. Yeah, yeah. Of the current either product suite or feature set or aspects of the current business, what's most exciting? 
What's most exciting in the current state? Now we're really excited about Embed. We're talking to to companies who have great content, who want tools to sell more of their content. So that's really um, interesting. We've also just launched our education product. So we have a lot of schools signing up. We, We do have a bunch of schools using our free tier, but our public consumer product doesn't comply with all the COPPA, Children's Protection Act and all of that. So we now built a version which is mainly for schools and we're just launching that, was it last Friday? Yeah. So I think that's quite cool. We're also now working on building the first real webified sampler, which is going to be interesting as well. A lot of customers are asking for that. So you will be able to drag in any sample and you can play it as your as your own instrument and you can tweak it. That's great. So, and in terms of what's the next big mountain that you're interested in climbing, what's the, what's the aspirational thing that either the technology is not there yet, or it's further in the roadmap? Like, is there a, is there a problem statement you're excited to tackle next? I, I think what would have the biggest impact is trying to get plugging companies along and really start getting plugins into uh, and make them webified. So we have some interesting talks with some of the, the big plugin companies, but often plugin companies are, you know, there's three people or two people. They're, they're often quite small companies and they don't have the time to, to, to sort of webify. We want to help them along as much as possible. Is there a version of the world where you could provide tools or services or, you know, is there a way you can seed that ecosystem? I think today's, Tools that you use to build plugins, they haven't yet been adopted to the web. So if that would happen, that the tools that they use also spits out a web version of your plugin, I think that could be a game changer. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. I think that's probably the biggest mountain (laughs) that we're going to climb. Yeah, it sounds like it's a key to unlocking scale of adoption. Yeah. But then, you know, there's also, uh, we're looking at a number of sort of adjacent services around this, which could be really good. Like a desktop dog could never do. So building in AI mastering or sample pack. Also, another thing that we were looking at is shareability. So last year, we worked a lot on zero friction access, trying to get into the product. We currently have guest mode. You don't even have to have to sign up. You can just jump into a template. You can play around with it and, and have fun. And then when you want to save it, then you create your account. And this is what the plugin companies thinks is um, amazing. And they would like to be able to do. And what we've moved on to now is zero friction sharing, where we want to make it as easy as possible to share anything. And then together with Zero Friction Access, so if you have done something really nice, like maybe you did a preset in our new sampler, you want to share it with your friend, you can just create a share link. And then your friend can click on that link. They don't even have to have an, an account. And then they can play around with it. That's very cool. Thank you, Adam Hassler, CEO of Soundation. We'll be back with more Spotlight On presented by Osiris Media after this break. 
And now back to Spotlight On and our next guests, Max Goldberg and Steven Siegel of Hot Drop. Thanks for making time to do this. I really appreciate it. It's great to talk to the two of you. So I wanted to sort of start at the, um, maybe not at the very beginning, but at the very beginning for me, could you tell me a little bit about the problem statement that you are aiming to address with Hot Drop? Finding music from underground artists is extremely difficult. That is the crux of the problem we're looking to solve and how we pair a passionate super fan who is a member of Gen Z, our generation, with underground artists for the benefit of the artist's career, as well as the listener's passion for discovery. Really two problems that, that go hand in hand. And what does underground mean to you? Is it a specific term of art or is it simply undiscovered artists? Like, could you unpack that a little bit? I think that you definitely can, can look at some quantitative measures. Looking at streams, for example, anything under, you know, at, or at around a million monthly streams would, would definitely be considered underground. I, I think the, the, the general distinction is what artists are, are label-backed and really hoarding most of the listening time and the, the recommendation content that streaming services are pushing to fans. So generally, if, if it's a common household name, we would definitely not consider that to be an underground artist, more so artists that are now getting the rise on social media. Some of the things that I've seen as I dug into the company, into the app a little bit, is this reference to sort of the changing listening habits in Gen Z. Could you talk a little bit for our listeners about what that means? How are the habits changing? What are some of the assumptions that go into that statement? I think one of the one of the key things to look at is how content over the last just five years has changed in consumption in this Gen Z category. I think if you're walking in any high school, any any college dorm, any anywhere, people are always addicted to that short form content. They want to see in the shortest possible bursts that satisfaction of discovering something different, seeing something different. That attention span has decreased dramatically, just anecdotally, among everyone I know in this in this age group. So I think playing on those two key factors, how do we deliver a short form opportunity for people to quickly filter through different songs? I think one of the problems we're seeing with playlists is it just takes way too much time to go through an entire playlist and actually give quality listening time to each song. So I think those are just some of the behaviors that, that are really shifting in how Gen Z consumes content, specifically audio and, and video. Yeah, and, I, and I'd just like to add there as well, the fact that music discovery is now evidently a multiple times a day behavior, habit, action, pastime, right? I, I think many are used to the times where maybe once a month or maybe a couple times a week, they freshen up the music they're listening to. But there's just so much music being released per day, right? The, the 100,000 tracks and 13 to 22 year olds love to go through it and they want to find the next hit. Gotcha. Okay. So we have the problem statement of sort of lack of access to discovery platforms might be one way to say it. The changing habits and how younger people discover and interact and sort of desire new music. If that's the table setting, how are you guys going about addressing that reality? What are you up to? You know, we saw at w when we were juniors at Indiana how people were discovering music. And we saw that no one on campus was relying on a streaming service, Spotify, to find the new music they listened to. Almost all recommendations were coming through friends. 
Now, when TikTok was introduced, we saw how transformative 30 second video discovery or so can be and, and how that leads to a crazy rate of sharing among friend groups almost overnight sometimes. So what we thought and, and, and saw is that if video can be discovered in fractions of the longer form content we're traditionally used to, couldn't music also be discovered more rapidly and conveniently in that same fashion? And we, we released the MVP and we're blown away, you know, did 2 million songs discovered in two weeks after our launch. We went viral at Indiana on our campus to look at the data. We saw that two seconds might be all the time it takes for someone to like a song and eventually listen to it later or completely disregard and keep swiping. So I think what we're bringing is not necessarily a solution to uh, avoid platforms that, that are looking to solve music discovery. I, I think the platforms that have existed now don't play on some of the consumer behaviors and tendencies of 13 to 22 year olds and, and soon to be Gen Alpha younger as well. And what are you seeing in terms of consumer behavior on the platform? Like what's proving or disproving some of your early assumptions? Just a few uh, different things that we're really seeing. One, a massive amount of sharing among friend groups to external platforms. And that was a key theme that we learned in the MVP. And, and just to backtrack, the goal of the MVP was how do we build an experience that allows this college age person to discover way more music in way less time than on any other platform. So that's the scope of, of the goal we had and we set out to achieve. I think another thing that we've really seen is just the pure consumer behavior of swiping on content is something that is a very immersive experience. We've, we've had user calls where people have literally fallen asleep in bed swiping on Hot Drop. So we, we've clearly, I think, built an experience that really resonates with this consumer audience. We're seeing a lot of swiping. And I think on other platforms, and, and really, I think a key theme of where we're headed is, is building that relationship between the fan and the artist. That is something that is so critical to... I think solving a lot of issues we're seeing in the music industry and in my view, solving a lot of the business model issues is, is really how do, how do we foster and build better relationships between content creators and artists and their fans. One of the things that wasn't immediately clear to me was where the music comes from in the app. And as I dug in a little bit, my, my first assumption was that you were integrating with other streaming services to provide the music, but then over the last few weeks, there's been more around the Hot Drop Studio, which I'm gathering gives creators or artists the ability to directly upload into the platform. Can you talk a little bit about that in terms of what Hot Drop Studio is today, what it's meant to be, but also is the notion that users of Hot Drop should have access to the entire universe of music, or is it really about just that subset of stuff they can't get anywhere else? Many great questions and, and, a, and a few items to unpack there. I'll, I'll start by answering your last question first. Is Hot Drop supposed to be an experience where every song under the face of the earth is available? The answer is no. And Spotify accomplishes that very well, right? They're a player. They're built to listen to any song with the clicks of a keyboard and you're flying. We're not looking to replace a player like Spotify. We see Hot Drop as a complimentary service and offering where diehard fans are looking through a much smaller but highly curated selection of music that 
they know their consumption will directly help artists. So on Hot Drop Studio, the answer is yes. Currently, artists for free can upload their music directly to Hot Drop, target our listeners, select the genres they want their song to be discoverable with, and, and some really exciting data tools to really unlock insights into what discovery is happening, right? How is my music being shared on a college campus? And a lot cooler tools that, that'll help artists in the production process that, that are on the way. I guess the answer here and today, we're using a, a combination of music from our catalog, right? Artists that have uploaded their music directly to us, similar to YouTube or, or SoundCloud. But we also are now pairing that with a smaller catalog of songs from leading streaming services and, and their respective APIs. When we had initially launched the MVP, this was September of 2021, we released Hot Drop only with Spotify's catalog and, and their API. Now, two things happened. One, users were unhappy that all the songs they were hearing on Hot Drop were songs that from mainstream artists that they can listen to in one of 25 DSPs, right? That, 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 that field is definitely saturated. And number two, when, when Spotify decided to cut our access um, and prevent us from displaying music in really the, the fast-paced, cutting-edge way, that, that, that was one of our larger innovations was the feed, uh, you know, 30-second snippets. We lost access, but artists started emailing us in the hundreds asking if they could upload their music directly to our fan base. So we we are definitely a, a, a user-generated content model, and we believe that is the only way to truly unlock monetization and more fandom for artists over time. From an artist or creator's perspective in terms of interfacing with the product and the platform, are there shortcomings or do you perceive limitations around the idea that it becomes yet another place to have to natively upload? Like, what if I'm an independent artist and I, you know, I self-distribute through DistroKid or any of the number of platforms? Is the idea that they can plug in through those platforms or do you become a distribution hub? Sort of how do you crack that so it doesn't become yet more work for the creator? We're always looking for opportunities to make the time to upload and the ease of uploading and, and really managing content easier for the artist. That's a crux of the studio. And we've heard from artists that it, they find it easier to use than nearly all of the distribution platforms and other DSPs as well. I will say that over time, we will be, and soon on our roadmap, we're releasing features that make uploading music a one or two tap style experience where it's just super easy to do. Are there opportunities to potentially plug in with some distributors over time? There are, but right now we're focused on direct-to-consumer music, and that means getting songs to fans without as many steps as currently are required. Do you think there is a type of user or fan or even a genre that you expect to do particularly well with this platform? Or are you seeing certain segments where the audience of this kind of music or the profile of this kind of fan is really sort of glomming onto it? Specifically in terms of the fan, a huge insight that we've uncovered is that just talking to, to people who are really power users on the app, they're engaging with many artists outside of, of Hot Drop on, on other kinds of social media platforms. So I think a large part of that is is just a, a hyper engagement with artists and a desire to like form connections with artists, going to different kinds of tours, concerts. I think on the genre side, it just 
from data from from our own user base, it actually is is very insightful compared to the data that we heard and saw from Spotify and oh sorry SoundCloud and what genres did particularly well in SoundCloud. So EDM, hip hop, and pop were three of the highest performing genres on SoundCloud that really drove a lot of virality outside of the app among these kinds of fans. Those are the three most popular genres on our platform as well, which, to be honest, was a hypothesis from from the early days. But that's a, a great sign and really driving in and leading into those genres and those audiences. And there's two main reasons why. One, those genres have cult-like followings and communities that, as Stephen alluded to, exist elsewhere on now Discord, right? Striving for community that doesn't exist on a music platform on social media trying to drive monetization and and ticket concert meet and greet sales from fans so I, I think that makes the most sense there's also a unique insight that's almost more recently come to our attention and it's the fact that artists in those genres tend to be much more comfortable releasing single drops or single releases and hence our, our name hot drop we're looking to build hype and virality around drops of music and see how fast we can actually get those to to be adopted within Gen Z communities. So if, if you're wanting to drop an album, Hot Drop right now, we will be supporting album upload. That might not be the best use of the platform right now. What really is starting to work are those singles. That's interesting. If we could zoom out a little bit into the broader ecosystem, what do you think the mainstream music business and mainstream music marketers are missing about what fans want today. They don't understand that music is more social and is allowed to be more social because of technology than ever before. The fact that 95% of listening time on Spotify is not spent through their recommendation, New Music Friday, the, the, the discovery is from friend groups. And I think they've missed a major opportunity by creating products that don't feel social whatsoever. They're solo experiences. The, the next shortcoming is that the fan is by no means connected, integrated, or associated with the production or creation process of a song and, and your brand as an artist. So we've heard almost unanimously from every artist we've spoken to on our platform that they want fans to provide qualitative and quantitative feedback. They want to be in touch and direct communication over how does this music sound? Do you like this release? And also some, some more overarching insights to help them make successful drops in a career. So I think that the fan has is, is largely been removed from the entire music experience, aside from that final drop, my song is ready for the world moment. And, and I think you're going to see fans being involved far earlier and far, with far greater iterations going forward. To the extent that you spend a lot of time thinking about it, why do you think the dominant platforms have gotten, they've gotten social so wrong? Like there's never been really a great use case and they've all tried, right? They've, they've all in various ways and have either walked away from it entirely or just left very rudimentary features in place. You could say like old web features, you know, share this link, that type of thing. Why do you think they, they're not good at it? And what do you think the blind spot is or the lack of worldview, I guess, that keeps them from getting good at it? Just to kind of answer the second part of that, I think 
the big distinction is a lot of these players and, and specifically Spotify. If you look at the founders and the early team and what they were really focused on, you don't see any Gen Z people or any people that were necessarily of the social network age, really that Facebook to present of the evolution of the social network. So I think a lot of them maybe got a lot of things early on in the process wrong or, or misinterpreted or misunderstood how, how to really build a social network. And I think one of the problems and huge, huge problem that these platforms ha are facing is that they're so generalized. The platform has to work for all different kinds of, of age groups. And I think that specifically the social features are probably going to be highly more effective with the younger audience. And I don't necessarily know that that has been the focus for a lot of these companies. And I think just seeing kind of where their product roadmap is on social, they've, they've hit a lot of messes on, on a lot of different features. Their, their business model also doesn't reflect the interests of artists. And I don't believe even five years ago, we would have had and, and we didn't see as much of a conversation of the alternative business models that might become viable now and over the next few years, directly unlocking from fans. So I think that if you look at some of, of course, the industry dynamics and politics, if you will, of a story of like Spotify, their business model doesn't necessarily resonate with increasing fandom from fans as much as it relies on increasing subscription payments from fans who don't use their service. So I think it's a mix of the two. Yeah, there, it's interesting in that what I would call like the first generation streaming services, you know, even maybe as far back as Rhapsody, but certainly through the the state of play today, the the current dominant players, they're in sort of an like a 80s, 90s visionary mindset of how technology works, right? Like they're, you know, as somebody who, you know, who goes back a little bit in time around digital music, there was this notion of like the celestial jukebox, right? That's what everybody talked about. Every song would always be available somewhere else and you would just have your access point. And that's essentially what we have today. Very sort of AI driven, editorially driven only to the extent that that was like a necessary bridge until this sort of magnificent algorithm could take over and feed us exactly what it knew we needed and wanted. But it doesn't seem like that really serves the need of the end user. And I, it's an interesting commentary or an interesting sort of strand to pull on because it's never been clear to me why the algorithm could not duplicate the human recommendation as well, all things equal. And I wonder how, how you think about that. Why isn't it good enough? Yeah, it, that, it's such a good question. Something we've considered a lot. I don't know at this point if it's worth or even possible to replicate rapport and, and almost the intuition that a friend would have when sharing a song. 90% of what goes into your acceptance of a song recommendation, and this is you know the whole field of musicology, right? It's the context and the relationship you have with the recommender and friends have on a number of subjects and decisions a major impact over the decisions we make so i think inherently because an algorithm is not your friend and i think gen z is in a unique position where people are pretty turned off to algorithms and they're very cognizant now of, of the power that they have over us and the content and information we receive so I think that as more algorithms and algorithmic decisions are dominating the mainstream in music, I actually think there's going to be an inverse effect where people are going to regard these recommendations as of increasingly lesser quality. Just so you know, for our Explore feed, 
well, we have an explore feed, the algorithm or process, if you will, is going to be much more weighted and focused on what your friends are listening to. Because we really think there's a power in what your friends are, are listening to. But what is that recommendation? How does that relationship happen? How does it really feel personal from a friend? I think that's that's really the next state of recommendation as a whole. And just on the subject of the industry, I think they, they've had a lot going for, for them for many years. And I think there's definitely an element of being afraid to, to go off too far in a direction and, and create some massive change where they're almost comfortable with what they have. So, so I think that that's just a nature of larger businesses and, and maturing businesses as well. Given all the context you just provided, is it fair to say that your challenge is more to get the product right than it is to get some, like you're not solving necessarily novel engineering problems. It's more about getting the experience correct. I, I think you nailed it with product experiences and the community. What does that feel like, right? You know, an inspirational company for us is Twitch. If I came on here a decade ago and said, we're going to sell a company for a billion dollars almost that 13-year-olds are watching gamers stream Call of Duty all day, you would have said, get out of here. And many people did say that, right? And there were plenty of places to stream gaming, like YouTube, like Facebook, that came before Twitch. And I think what separated them exclusively and made them successful was that they really nailed what the community and relationship between the creator and the super fan had to feel like. And once they did that, they found a way to monetize through donations, as an example, that no one probably anticipated would be successful. So I think that with, with more volume of music, with hundreds of millions of artists and more music that will be created, I think you're going to see fragmentation in the platforms that people use to discover and connect over music. And I think the more itch of a platform, potentially the more successful in, in the long term. But by no means do I believe this will be a zero-sum game, this innovation, this time of innovation. There should be a couple large players in the space that prevail. Are you seeing anything in the marketplace, not necessarily competitively, I'm not asking you to sort of shine a light on, on somebody else's work, but more generally, are you seeing anything in the field of recommendation or in sort of peer recommendation, peer collaboration that you find inspiring or interesting? And it doesn't have to be limited to music. Are, are there other communities that are using product and technology that you find interesting? I'm focusing less or so on the recommendation aspect of things. I think TikTok undoubtedly might have created the best recommendation system of all time. And to be honest, we wouldn't be here if we didn't have them validate many of our hypotheses with respect to video and certainly change the industry of music in certain ways. I just do think that they are a social network at this point and music is already ruthlessly competitive and now pinning against music creators with creators and hundreds to thousands of different content verticals that's just going to be a disaster and, and we're already starting to see that personally i think discord has created some pretty strong sense of community especially with with musical fandom and and i think that goes to show that the current music solutions don't actually foster a sense of community otherwise why would they be going onto this platform it's just another app right why would we take another step if these platforms really did create that that true fandom that artists need to succeed. 
I think that definitely TikTok has, has been a huge inspiration just around the recommendation of content with friends. I would say that most of the content I'm consuming on TikTok is based on, hey, someone has sent me something. So I have that nudge to go back to the platform. And I think another similar music experience, although definitely had a lot of challenges and continue to have a lot of challenges, is SoundCloud. And I think something I, I discovered a lot, I discovered SoundCloud and I discovered a lot of music on SoundCloud because a friend of mine would put it on Instagram and say, hey, I found this amazing new song. So I think the, the early roots of, of what we're building was definitely there. I think it's just a matter of capitalizing and executing and, and building that community effectively. SoundCloud's an interesting example. I, I was speaking with someone else recently about how, you know, I, I haven't paid attention much maybe coming out of the pandemic, but it seemed like there was always this period of time where SoundCloud was on death watch and it was never clear, like, what is the model there? How are they going to, there's so much great music. People clearly love it. Creators use it to facilitate all aspects of their career, you know, whether it's for in their publicity or sharing links, what have you. It's such a great platform, but it never seems to have found its sort of killer app or its killer monetization strategy. It's such a good point. Stephen and I had this conversation earlier today as well. Just for starters, Steve and I are 21, so we missed the, the SoundCloud heyday, which was more the, the millennial generation, slightly older than we are. That was something they used all the time in high school and college, and, and we've spoken at length with people who, who were SoundCloud junkies, if you will. I'll say that what they did really well was build a vibrant ecosystem where artists who were nobodies are now some things and some of the biggest artists our generation looks up to today you know billy eilish lil uzi bird uh, lil nas x eh, to name a few right and i i think what they did well very well for their time was foster this real-time interaction between fans and music itself right commenting on time stamps of a song it's it's genius but i think what happened over time and it's our impression that they should have been and should be the biggest music company to ever do it. They really did not adapt their mobile experience to the point where it felt cluttered. You you can't use and no one uses SoundCloud to actively discover. It's purely referral at this point. So I think we saw, hey, this underground music scene is way bigger than any of us realize. We have the ability to bring hit makers and tastemakers two stars. Right. And if you facilitate an active discovery experience that's truly fun, truly easy and, and with your friends, there there's some pretty strong opportunities in, in that front. Yeah, you sort of you brush against the limitations of both what SoundCloud and Bandcamp have done. Right. They provide these amazing platforms for people to put their music out there to some extent, have it easy to share. But there isn't that experiential layer over it, whether the website or, or I mean, the mobile apps for both of them are pretty, they're, they're dead ends. They really are. If, if, you, if you're curating your own library for your own consumption, it's fine-ish. But if you're trying to have a larger experience and a group experience, they really are missed opportunities. Totally. And also on your, on your point of business model, SoundCloud has recently introduced fan-powered royalties, I believe they call it. And it's interesting, and, and I think that they're, they're thinking definitely similarly to how Hot Drop and, and what our vision for the music space looks like. I think there's more monetization from fans, and that's directly correlated to their usage. 
I'm still skeptical that the platform would work for most artists. But then again, you know, I'm skeptical that any golden nugget solution, right, would automatically unlock just vast monetization for artists. I think what platforms, and I know what we're trying to do is, how can we create much smaller micro communities and micro almost powerhouses of fandom around lesser known artists and seeing if we can use means that have always been profitable for artists like selling goods, like selling merchandise, right? Ticketing. How can we unlock greater commerce with those already proven models, but with your hungriest fans? And, and I think that that would paint a future where more artists would monetize at least at a far greater rate and, and magnitude than they do with streaming. All right. Two more questions before I let you go. And the first is, to the extent that you're comfortable saying so, how do you think about the full articulation of your vision or of your platform? Like, what's your ideal? What do you want it to be? How do you want it to be thought of? I think the difference we want to make in the music industry is really focused around the artist. And and I think the legacy that I want to leave and, and the legacy that I think we as a company want to build towards is is this environment where artists can be making music and can actually be making a fair living and not have to worry about another job or not have to worry about anything, but continuing to make music and grow their community and grow their fan base. I think that's a much better music industry and, and it's extremely idealistic, right? It's, it's, it's harder than just some words, but I think that's the vision that, that we want to set out. And I think how we're specifically thinking about doing that is through the lens of democratization. How do we democratize the music industry? Whether it's giving every artist a fair chance at success through growing their fan base and, and having equal opportunity at getting heard by our fan base, equal opportunity to monetize their fans, equal opportunity to do anything that I think currently we're in a music industry where the top artists, the, the financially supported artists, whether by record label or, or by good track record, they have a lot of advantages that smaller artists don't have. And that's really the vision we want to set out to, to democratize and, and give everyone a fair opportunity. Yeah, and I think it's this idea of disintermediation, right? Gatekeepers and middlemen create market inefficiencies. And this space has been riddled and might be number one with the most gatekeepers and inefficiencies. So the, the closer, again, you can bring fans and artists together, a true direct-to-consumer model for music that will at least, whether we're tremendously successful at accomplishing our, our goals or not, will set the industry on a in a trajectory of, okay, there are other demands we actually have to consider here because artists can remain independent and have a viable either shot at success or career. Your answers have hinted at my next question, but I just want to ask it a bit more explicitly. Why do you care about solving this problem? And I specifically mean you as individuals. What 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 is it that lit you up about wanting to address this this problem statement or this this set of problems? I think for for us, and it's always been fascinating to to think about this because once you're in the thick of it, sometimes you you really lose focus on what actually inspired you. You know, at first, and I think number one, a tremendous roaring passion for for music and and supporting artists that's something steven and i had done in our personal lives outside of hot drop before hot drop was created and i think there's a lot more people out there that do want to show a next level of support and i think that that's something that didn't exist so we have an obligation and responsibility 
to help usher in that that change. I'd say number two is that I view musicians today much more similarly to myself as an entrepreneur than I think people have done in the past. And, you know, I'm fortunate to have mentors and, you know, have gone through tech stars and, and have had ad, an education where I'm learning the power of using data and, and making agile decisions and being open to feedback and modifying our product to serve a real need. And, and I think that education and, and thought leadership has been largely null in the space up until I think even this past year. And I think that if we can create tools where artists can create music in a more lean way, reach audience and feedback faster, and then if they do have a shot at success, really help them ride that momentum, that definitely starts to paint a, a more sustainable vision of what it means to be an artist. And I think that's something that's really important to us as, as younger entrepreneurs. Yeah, I just want to definitely add in, like, I think my personal motivation is, is one, just being that super fan being that person that really wants to engage with artists, wants to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation, give feedback, figure out when when's this next release? When are you touring near me? So I, I really feel like in the position of, of being the super fan, and this is an amazing opportunity and, and extremely motivational to be able to help the artist out and, and really level the playing field so other people can have the same experience that I do. Well, it's a righteous mission. I thank you both again for spending time to talk about not only, you know, what you're up to in particular, but the, the larger ecosystem and landscape. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having us on. Thank you, Max Goldberg and Steven Siegel of Hot Drop. As always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On, which is presented by Osiris Media. Executive producers are Lawrence Purrier, RJB, Brian Brinkman, and Matt Dwyer. Spotlight On is produced by Michael Donaldson with theme music by Qburn's Abstract Message. If you like what you've heard, please share us with a friend and leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. Visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com or at spotlightonpod on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch. Stay in touch.